Hello and welcome to Cannon and Cockrell. My name's Michael and I'm a Spurs fan. And I'm Jason and I'm an Arsenal fan. And this is the third in our Throwback Thursday series. And today we're going back to the 20th of November 2010 and Tottenham's first away winner Arsenal for 17 years, I think it was, where they came from 2-0 down to win 3-2. Jason, do you have fond memories of this game? It was the moment the tide changed for me. I always remember that feeling of the of uh, the winner for Spurs. And uh, I know in terms of context, it was relatively early in the state season still, not not yet Christmas and kind of at the halfway point, but we could have gone top of the league. And uh, I think it I think it was um, the sign of things to come when Arsenal started to be really known as as the bottlers. Um, that was it was the same year as the Birmingham uh, loss in that final a few months later. Um, thanks, Kajelny and Chesney. Really, really helpful. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a game that sticks in the mind um, and not for the good reasons. And how about you? Does it, did it feel like the kind of shift for you, or, or did you feel the, the momentum was coming? I suppose we talked about the four-four that was previous to this, um, that kind of slowly, slowly built up a bit of momentum over those years. But 2010 probably um, was the moment it, it really, um, it really changed. Yeah, it was definitely the start of something. I mean, obviously, we still finished uh, behind you in the league at the end of this season and for the, the few seasons after that. But it was the start of getting rid of that inferiority complex. There was the, the 4-4 with, with that comeback from 4-2 and then to to win coming back from 2-0 down. It's the sort of thing that at that time I wasn't used to seeing Spurs teams do against any opponent, let alone against Arsenal. And it was definitely the start of changing the, the mentality around around this fixture, even if it then took a few more years for us to actually uh, fin- finish above you. But I remember with this game, the drama actually starting even before kickoff with the pre-match handshakes with uh, Samir Nasri snubbing our captain for the day, William Gallas, and the handshakes. Um, do you remember what the, the beef was between them? You know what? I didn't, even, I didn't even think about that. But now it's all slowly coming back. There was... There was something in the air. I don't remember the story, but there was always reports of a rift between them. Both Frenchmen, both played for the national team at the time, I believe. I can't remember, but I do remember it being an issue. And those are kind of the days where the media were really focused on the handshakes. Nowadays, obviously, you don't even have the handshakes or the football, to be honest. But yeah, it's very, very interesting, really. I mean, I don't know whether it was... It was something to do with Arsenal camaraderie about going to the rivals. I think it was slightly deeper than that and maybe even personal. Um, both controversial characters in Arsenal history and, and, and creating controversy for themselves at the beginning of the game. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think in England, we, we pay a lot of attention to things like that and the captaincy and the kind of um, dynamics between individual players and it kind of detracts from the football. Um but I can't pretend to tell you that I know exactly what was going on. But perhaps uh, they would they would um, they would like to come on the podcast, the two of them, and we can mediate, uh, moderate a conversation between them about what happened. That'd be fantastic, sir. So, Sam and uh, William, if you're listening, we'd we'd love to have you on. Um, but it, it seems to definitely have um, g'd up Sam and Nasri because then he went and got the opening goal of the game after a, a classic piece of calamitous goalkeeping from Aurelio Gomez. Yes, yes, he did. So, uh, I mean, it was an unreal ball by our by our mate Cesc Fabregas, my favourite, out of absolutely nothing. Um, and Nasri was at his peak at the time. You know, it, I think the... Do you remember that goal against Fulham he scored where he kind of 
kind of tur- twisted and turned and kind of fell and, and curved it past the keeper at an impossible angle. It was, um, it was just an iconic Nasri goal for the Arsenal fans. And I remember being there and thinking, how has he done that? And this, this was around that time. And, you know, it was bad keeping by Gomez, but it was such a good finish at such a tight angle. And it made me think again, what could have been with a player like, like Samir Nasri? Um, but, you know, unfortunately, he decided to, to go blue. And, uh, you know, there's a million reasons why, I'm sure. Um, but but uh, it was a nice start to the game and uh, so early on as well. And then the, the second goal came from a rather unfamiliar source in Shamak, who isn't perhaps remembered as, as fondly as Samir Nasri is. Um, was this was, was Shamak good at this moment in time? I seem to remember there was a brief period of time where people thought he was a good player and he, he was quite a um, a good option for Arsenal going forwards. I can't quite remember when it all sort of fell apart for him or, or when he stopped being regarded as a good player. Well, I remember being linked as such in the media with uh, Chamak for a while and then they said that Wenger was just waiting and waiting to get the fee down. He won that title with Bordeaux. Um, and I believe this was I believe this was his first season or maybe his second season at the club and he... He, he started well. He started well. And the fact that he was uh, starting in a North London derby kind of says it all. You know, he was leading the line instead of Van Persie was on the bench um, or Theo, who was getting the chance at the time. So that kind of says what Wenger felt about him. Um, but he, he he had a lot of promise. You you know, you looked at him and you thought, this is a footballer. And sometimes he he, he did something special. But most of the time it, it was... It was really. It kind of felt like it felt like luck for him. I need. I mean, specifically in this goal, it was he was right place, right time, and but he, he kind of tumbled the ball in and didn't really know too much about it. And of course, he was wearing a snood, which was all the range, and and managed to again back back to that thing I was talking about about English football, about the focus of the media, and all we were talking about was players wearing snoods and the criticism of that rather than the actual playing. Um, no, Chamak was Chamak was an enigma. Um, I think I wish I wish it went better, but he became a bit of a cult hero and a joke, like so many players um, before and after him. You know, I think uh, Ebue was one of them for sure. Um, Bentner became one of them. Uh, Javinho especially as well. Sylvester Scalacci. It seems to be these players that you know you you know they've got the ability, but for some reason or another they haven't got that confidence on the pitch. And I think the more the fans got on their back, the more. He ate them up alive, and unfortunately, it, it didn't. It didn't work out for him very quickly, and he had a couple of loan spells. And I, I don't even remember the day we sold him, but I think, uh, I think we bought him too late. We he passed his peak, and uh, it was that's a consequence again of, of Wenger trying to find a bargain. The snood thing. I remember the the like you said, all the media attention around snoods. I mean, I've got a snood now. They're great, and it seems like everyone. I mean, Jurgen Klopp wears a snood all the time, doesn't he? I mean, now they're. That uh, accepted piece of football uh, kit, but yeah, I remember the the snood obsession. I remember Carlos Tevez had a huge one, didn't he? Uh, it was, oh, it, it was a classic. It was an iconic one. Yeah, uh, bring back the snood. Bring back the snood. Snoods FC. And so half time, Arsenal tune up, and you must have been thinking at this point that this was job done. I thought it would be, but again, in Arsenal fashion, you know that if you've got someone in goal like Flappy Hansky um, and a back four, including uh, Skolacci and Kajoni and Clichy, um, that, that mistakes are, are in the bag. And um, 
And then Gareth arrived. Indeed, it's a fantastic goal. And actually, one of the players who started the move, winning a header, which is not something he you might associate with him given his height, but Jermaine Defoe, who came on as a sub um, at half-time for Aaron Lennon. And I was actually reading an article the other day on The Athletic about, it was like a list of 10 of the most effective uh, tactical substitutions in the in the history of the Premier League. And I gave Harry Redknapp a lot of criticism in our last story back Thursday about the in the, the 5-2 game where we threw away a two-goal lead and I kind of blamed it on him and his lack of, of tactical prowess and his poor half-time team talk. But to give the credit where it's due, he made a change and it had an immediate impact, bringing on Defoe for Lennon. Ball comes up, Defoe wins the header, Rafael van der Vaart chests it down, great bit of control, lays it off for Gareth Bale, who takes it in his stride with his left foot and kind of toe-pokes it almost into the bottom corner. And you could see by the way he ran to pick up the ball and run back to the halfway line that Spurs, you know, were up for it. He wasn't running to the away fans to celebrate. He was like, okay, here we go. Pick the ball up. Let's get started again. Let's go and get the second goal. And Van der Vaart, who laid the ball off for him, was then again involved for the second goal, involved in all three goals, actually. And he was a player who absolutely loved a North London derby, always seemed to score against Arsenal. He was a player who immediately got it, immediately got the passion, immediately knew what it meant, which players coming from abroad sometimes don't appreciate. But he had the same sort of passion for this fixture that, you know, Harry Kane does um, at the moment and a similar sort of um, prolific record in, in these sort of fixtures as Harry Kane has now. And he took the free kick, which then Cesc Fabregas, who you were praising earlier, inexplicably <laughs> handled the way he, it wasn't even that the ball was coming towards him. He sort of pushes his arm out uh, in front of his uh, teammates. And then my favourite bit is the way he kind of, looks around as if he's got no idea what went on as if the ball kind of hit him on the head it was very explicit that handball I don't know it was very unlike him you know for someone so composed on the ball it was just kind of like putting his hand up in a class or something to ask a question to Wenger and I wonder whether it's something that players now wouldn't even bother to attempt in a VAR world because that was still at the kind of time period where players probably thought they could get away with ridiculous handballs I mean it can't have been that long after Thierry Henry handled the ball for France to qualify then for the 2010 World Cup. I did not see that. I don't remember. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I mean, you'd hope now that a player wouldn't be stupid enough to do that. Now they know everything's being looked back on. But yeah, bizarre way to just let us back into the game. And then Van der Vaart, cool as you like, takes the penalty and makes it 2-2. And all with, of an, with an Arsenal player not being able to dive the right way yet again. Seems to be a recurrent theme with goalkeepers at Arsenal. I don't remember the last time I saw a saved penalty. It's unbelievable. And I mean, Van der Vaart as well was lethal from the penalty spot. I mean, I think he did miss maybe one or two off the top of my head. But when he stepped up, I remember at the time feeling very, very confident. And I used to never feel confident when we got penalties. I remember when it used to be between kind of Defoe or Robbie Keane taking them I'd always have this feeling that they, they could miss. But with Van der Vaar, I remember feeling so confident. And I mean, this was his first season at the club and he had such a huge immediate impact, just his experience and his mentality and his goal scoring. I think he really helped us in, in what was as well our debut season in the Champions League. I think he was a huge reason we got to the quarterfinals and why we were in the top four race again this season, even though we finished fifth. And I think he gets booked actually for his celebration 
where he shushes the Arsenal fans before going to celebrate with the Spurs fans. I remember he got a booking for that, which I thought Very was right. Very right. quite harsh at the time. And it's funny, it's something about our clubs going two up and bottling it, and it seemed to happen happen again after after the after last um, derby we talked about. Yeah, it's just a shame we couldn't get the fourth and fifth because it was actually quite late in the day until we got our third goal. It wasn't the case that Arsenal sort of immediately crumbled. I think it was quite back and forth then until very late on. And I think, was it Koscielny who missed a great header opportunity to, to win the game for Arsenal? I mean, there was a long stretch of the game there where Arsenal still could have won the game if they'd had their shooting boots on. I mean, do you... Do you look back at the second half and think that, you know, despite the Spurs comeback, that Arsenal, even having lost the two goal lead, still had the opportunity and the chances and the, the quality to, to win this game, despite the blow of losing the two goal lead? Well, you've got to ask a lot of questions about what happened at half time because, you know, they're two up. They managed to starve off 20 minutes without conceding a goal. You go into half time, you're supposed to have your supreme leader shut up shop. Five minutes later, you've conceded and then... Uh, Goal after goal, throughout, you know, spread almost at nearly 20 minute intervals through the second half. So you're thinking, hold oh, on, this isn't just a bad period in the game. This is a lapse of a half. Um, and, you know, we had our chances. But I think once you concede that first one, there's doubt in your mind. Once you concede the second one with such a silly action like that handball, you're thinking this isn't our day. Um, and I think that's, again, it was that psychological element at Arsenal during that time that you just you just knew as a fan when you were watching that you it, it was it was like the literary technique of foreshadowing that's exactly what it feels like with Arsenal you know as soon as you see something I, re- I remember I felt I felt that feeling at Birmingham later that season I felt it I believe it was this season was it um in the Champions League against not Champions League I wish uh, <laughs> Europa League against Olympiacos and we 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 miss that um we missed that sitter with Aubameyang but just before they'd scored um to win it on to win it on on um on aggregate through away goals and and you just you just knew that goal was coming even though it was five minutes left even though we were in control you knew it was coming and that that seems to be an Arsenal feeling and um and certainly it came very very late on um again really courtesy of Van der Vaart um with a fabulous set piece yeah, brilliant in-swinging free kick and a Nunes Kabul of all people there to head the ball in. And what I love about the, the celebration is the way he kind of runs towards Harry Redknapp to celebrate and Redknapp kind of celebrates and then immediately starts shouting for, for them all to get back and get to defend, to hold on to the lead. And I think even at that point, I probably still thought that we were going to throw it away, that we, we weren't going to hold out. But luckily we did. And it was a a famous win and I remember the commentary saying something along the lines of oh is this is this the day the balance of power in North London shifted and just uh, it went against so much of what people associated and, and still associate with Spurs because it, it was the exact you know we, we I mean okay the, the, se- the next season we were the ones who threw away a two goal lead and you went and won 5-2 and finished above us again and you finished above us this season but like the 4-4, like the 5-1 the seasons before that, it was just, it marked that gradual chipping away at Arsenal's superiority and that gradual building of our confidence until it got to the point where we overtook you in the league and, and became the better side. Um, we haven't had too many wins at the Emirates, though, since then. I think the only one I can think of was the 2-0 win in the... Um, 
the Carabao Cup last season. And I think since this game in 2010, we haven't won at the Emirates in the league. So in a strange way, it's almost you've reasserted that dominance, at least at home. A lot of our good record against you recently has come from wins at White Hart Lane. Um, but it is strange, actually, unless I'm forgetting something obvious, but it is strange to think that despite the impact that this result had in the long term, that we haven't been able to follow it up. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, we mentioned just before um, off offline that, um, you know, we've been talking about all the games at the Emirates uh, that seem to happen. And I'm sure there were such exciting games at White Hart Lane where I remember you were you were winning. I remember a terrible nil-nil draw, which was just boring, boring, boring. I also remember a very lovely one, on my side at least, with uh, Adi Bayor and Fabregas's screamers. Uh, I believe it was a 3-1 in the Paul Robinson days. Um, but yes, I, 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 I need, we need to have a look at that because it, it's interesting. You would have thought that it was almost like the tide changed overall, but that game has always been a bit of a of a of a, to- of a coin toss. You never quite know what you're going to get in the North London derby. Even when we started this podcast um, around a year ago, um, you know, they they when we won comprehensively, I, I was going in into that game thinking there's not a chance we get a result. Um, and I don't know what's what what changed with that, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I want to go back to that goal because and those celebrations because you kind of remember them vividly, and I just remember them haunting me. Cabal's face haunts me, and not only him, it's the, it's that image of Sanya Squalacci, Song Kajoni, and, and Fabregas, I believe, and they're all they're all just looking forward, and they're walking, and they're not looking at each other, and you're thinking, where is the leadership in this team? You, you, you know, you expect your captain to start rallying the troops, and, you know, there, there was five minutes left and a bit of injury time, and, and yet there was nothing, there was no momentum, they gave up. Um, and that leadership element is something that, you know, I've mentioned time and time again and, and, and still seems to be missing that Arsenal team. And it, it harbours back to that game as well. And I guess Spurs, inversely, have, in my opinion, probably gained that from the teams of old, where it looked like they were they were all a bit um, clueless. And then, you know, Harry Kane, for me, or that, that spine as well, have seemed to, to really take leadership roles within the Spurs team to... To, to get more victories and points over us. The other image I remember as well is Arsene Wenger chucking that water bottle on the floor. Which I think that's a weekly occurrence. That yeah. wasn't just uh, that game. Unfortunately, he, he loved a good bottle. It was it was up there with his not being able to do up his jacket. There was that period where the entertainment on the touchline was, will Arsene be able to do up the zip in his jacket? And will well, he chip it? advert on it quite recently actually or a few years ago it was very interesting he uh he tried it was a whole thing about the big coat and they, they uh and at the end he said they said a much better way to do your zip and he says i think so too <laughs> i was like thanks arson now can we get back to winning trophies please <laughs> Thank, thanks for the adverts arson but it's time to say goodbye oh god it was uh it was a tough time you know i think about it it was it was testing for the love of football you know, Arson and that end of that era was really starting to make us uh, lose belief in the footballing system. And unfortunately, Unai Emery didn't quite restore that belief as much as we did. But but now, you know, when you've got someone like Arteta who's played in a North London derby and knows what it's about, um, it gives me more faith that 
please God, soon when we can get, we're able to finish um, this season, we can uh, play you at a neutral ground or at um, the creatively named is it is it New White Hart Lane or New or Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Well, the the official name is Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, but I think everyone just still calls it White Hart Lane. Well, regardless, it's very very creative. Well done to the uh, the marketing team at the at Spurs. I think they should get a pay rise for that. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I have a little bit more faith in North London derbies than I used to because I know Arteta will be diligent. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because we are even though this is going out on a Thursday, we are recording this on the Sunday the 26th, on the day where it would have been the first North London derby at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And it is interesting to think when and if that will happen. Um, and yeah, what the, the future of the North London derby will be like between Arteta and Mourinho. It'll be a fascinating kind of tactical clash between the two of them to think that, I mean, the, all the episodes we've done so far have been Redknapp versus Wenger. And recently we had, well, for a season or, or so, we had Emery versus Pochettino. But now Mourinho versus Arteta, I think, will be a very interesting battle. And I have to say, if there's any manager who I think can go and win at the Emirates and get a result, even if it's not in the prettiest fashion, I think it is someone like Jose Mourinho. I mean, it's interesting to think that Pochettino, for everything we, we achieved under him in terms of eclipsing Arsenal in the league, he didn't actually win a Premier League game at the Emirates, which is perhaps something that would surprise people considering how much we um, we overtook you during his during his years. It would be interesting to see whether Mourinho can do something that he couldn't. They really are different characters and different kind of uh, styles and philosophies and experiences. Um, and in the recent years, you'd probably say on paper Arteta has had more success, but, you know, he's had Pep Guardiola um, as his mentor as well. So it, it, it will be fascinating, that dynamic. And I'm sure I'm sure there'll be respect between the two. But, um, you know, sometimes when you've got an experienced mind who knows how to win the big games against someone who, you know, is still learning the ropes, could we be a little bit too clever for our own good? That That's a massive risk. At the same time, you know, let's take a risk. Let's be exciting because... You've kind of got nothing to lose at this stage because you're building a new team. And it's uh, something that what led me on to kind of all these articles I've been reading from various bloggers and uh, podcasters and listening to their their podcasts as well about Arsenal state and how, you know, things are going to change. The financial this crisis that we're having um, at the moment will ripple into into football and and the management and player dynamics. And they'll be they'll become it'll change. They'll be a refresh of kind of personnel and about who we actually can sign. And it'll be really interesting to see who makes that cut. Yeah, it is going to be, it's going to be a whole new, a whole new league. I mean, that's the thing, even if we are able to to pick up the season where we left off and, and finish it, we're not really picking up from where we left off because if we do play Arsenal in a, in a, a match that is designated as the season we're currently in, it will be a, a Spurs and Arsenal side that wouldn't have been able to play had this game happened when it was supposed to. Um, and yeah, going into next season, whenever that is, it will be a completely different financial landscape and how that affects the dynamics of this rivalry will be fascinating to see. I mean, we'll find out which of the, the two clubs is best placed to come out of this on the other side 
maybe not necessarily stronger, but still in a still in a good state and who's able to kind of kick on from here or whether we'll see this as a moment where actually the pause kind of reversed what was happening before and maybe even Arsenal can reassert some of that dominance. I mean, it's funny because I, I read the other day that if they decide to just finish this season and decide who finishes where on points per game, then because Arsenal hadn't yet played that game in hand against Manchester City and they would play the game less, that will mean that their points per game would mean you overtake us and finish above us, which would be a very Spursy way of finishing behind Arsenal for the first time in four years if it was on a points-per-game basis because you, you hadn't been able to play that game against Man City. That would be a lovely St Totteringham's day. Although it's, it's funny, four years in a row you finished above us. I never would have thought when I started out supporting Arsenal that you'd be able to utter those words. And it just makes me think, you know, we're, we're, on paper we're, we're a richer club monetary-wise and we've, we've had that momentum how on earth have we allowed Spurs to overtake us? I mean, it's 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 a testament to your club as well. You know, obviously there's questions to be asked about the way Arsenal run, but it's real testament to show how how Spurs have turned it around. Yeah, particularly with some of those some of those fixtures you were you were talking about earlier, talking about the the screamers from Adebayor and Fabregas smashing goals past Paul Robinson. If you'd said then that. In 10 or so years' time, it'll be Tottenham who regularly finish above Arsenal and they're getting to Champions League finals whilst Arsenal get knocked out of the Europa League to Olympiacos. I mean, it, it really is like the two clubs have, have traded places. Yeah. Time will tell. Time will tell. And I suppose looking back, if you if you did want to retreat back to the comfort of a time when Arsenal were the, the number one team in North London, Jason, are there any particular matches that that you would like to take another look back at again? Maybe some that took place at White Hart Lane, perhaps? Oh, definitely has to be a White Hart Lane one. Um, yeah, I think once we've, 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 we've had a Spurs loss uh, loss for Arsenal, so maybe we need to turn the tides again and uh, and go for that 3-1. I, I enjoy watching those goals, and uh, I think there's a lot of history when you look at the players who've scored as well, such as Adi Bayor, and uh, kind of a flashback to what was once you know a passionate Arsenal player banging in goals against Spurs to um to quite the opposite so uh that would be a personal preference of mine I'm uh I'm sure I'll be able to to manage I'll find a way to get through it and then think of which uh Tottenham victory I can respond with for, for the one after that perfect I shall await <laughs>